Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to the voice of the drama merchant, and this is the Radio Play Hour. of the Radio Play Hour and tuning in for the very first time, the show was originally performed live between 2018 and 2019 as an old-time radio play show, to which we had music, radio drama, skits, and you can see the sound effects performed live. As we were slowly building up an audience and a name for ourselves, COVID-19 hit, and so now it seems it's time to put the show online with the occasional live show to be performed. So for those of you who are tuning into this broadcast for the very first time, I thank you very much for your support. In this show, you will hear a Celtic women's song sung by my lovely fiancé, Peter Simeon, and the musical stylings of Harry James and his orchestra, played from my 110-year-old gramophone player. You will also hear news broadcasts from the year 1944 via my old-time radio that I have set up right next to me. Breaking news, 1944. A new character will be joining us on the Radio Play Hour. His name will be Giles Pendlebury. He will be my arts journalist, who will do interviews with characters from books, plays and films who have made a name for themselves, thanks to the imagination of some of the great creators. The vocal talents you will hear in the Radio Play Hour today are Kent Lee, myself, my partner Peter Simeon, and Douglas Kennedy. We start with the cost of living. I will just go over here and turn on the uh, radio. Breaking news, 1944. While our lads are overseas at the front in the war effort, here at home life goes on with its many ups and downs. The cost of living is holding steady with essentials taking up much of the household budget. A loaf of bread costs five pence, while milk is seven and butter will set you back around 19 pence. The population is holding steady at 7.3 million and the average wage is 2,400 pounds a year. A new home will set you back 3,450 pounds. However, rationing was introduced on January the 14th this year with everyone holding tight to their coupons. Allowances include 112 coupons each year for clothes, while a pound of sugar per adult person has to make do for a fortnight. There's also a pound of butter each fortnight, two pounds of meat each, and two pounds of sugar per fortnight. This year, the country has been introduced to a nasty little cartoon character known as the Squanderbug, who has a round spiky body with pointed ears and a devil's tail. He wants us to spend, 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 but the government message is to resist him with slogans such as smoke less, burn less money, drink less, satisfy the need, not the habit, plan meals for their value, give up cosmetics, it's smart to be natural. And now Giles Pendlebury and myself are ready to speak to our special guest who is also here to tell us the story of the Musgrave Ritual. Over to you, Giles. Ahoy hoy, listeners. Giles Pendlebury here, and thank you for your company today, as well as that of my guests. It is a warm welcome to Dr. John H. Watson. 
Thank you for being on the program, Doctor. It's a pleasure. I have just been hanging about in the libraries of the world, waiting for the opportunity to have my own voice. Well, we are indeed curious to hear what you have to say. Let's start off with your name. Dr. John H. Watson. Where did that originate? Well, it's funny you should ask that. Did you know that Sir Arthur was going to call me Ormond Sacker? Elementary, my dear Sacker. Hmm. Not as pleasing to the ear. So how was it that Sacker became Watson? Well, the, the popular belief is, is that I was named for one of Sir Arthur's colleagues, Dr. James Watson. And maybe that's true. But I believe the name came about because it's, it, it's so ordinary. And my job in the stories is to be the super sleuth's sounding board, and maybe at times the, the regular chap who can ask the obvious questions. Well, that leaves us with the mystery of the H. What does the H stand well, for? Well, I, I can't answer that one. Sir Arthur never explained the H. But I can tell you that the, the question has intrigued our fans Indeed. since the beginning. Fans and fan clubs alike have amused themselves by exploring and expanding upon the original stories and aspects of Holmes's life, particularly as Conan Doyle yes, wasn't always uh, so forthcoming. I don't think he talked about me much, but I don't mind. Well, I don't think I mind. <laughs> After all, as Sir Arthur himself said on many occasions, uh, many people think we are real. Uh, so uh, that fills yes, me with we pride. humans are indeed emotional beings. Uh, now, uh, I hope I'm wrong, but I believe you were once described as Holmes's stupid friend. Yes, well, uh, I admit that did upset me, because I might not be a super sleuth, but... It is generally acknowledged that I am a first-class doctor. Unhomeable and upstanding profession. What about Holmes? Do you think he ever took you for granted? It did cross my mind, yes. But then came the casebook of Sherlock Holmes. And, and that, that moved me greatly. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, by all means, please, uh, remind the listeners. What did it say? Well, yes, I, I have it written down here on a piece of paper. The words were, You're not hurt, Watson. For God's sake, say you're not hurt. It was worth a wound. It was worth many wounds. To know the depth of loyalty and love which lay behind that cold mask. The clear, hard eyes were dimmed for a moment. And the firm lips were shaking. For the one and only time I caught a glimpse of a great heart as well as a great brain. Oh, my years of humble service, but a single-minded service culminated in that moment of revelation. What Conan Doyle wrote there had a profound effect on me as a character, and made up for all the times I felt slighted. Here's a service for which the world is indeed richer for. Huh? For what would Sherlock Holmes be without Dr. Watson? Well, not much, I fear. Sir Arthur did give me a life outside of 221B Baker Street. I even married. My beloved Mary. <laughs> Still going strong. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I am first and foremost Holmes's True. Boswell. However, didn't he once complain that your stories were too romantic and possibly not scientific well, maybe, enough? But he keeps coming back to me and 
Now most of the important detectives have a sidekick, eh? <laughs> they, they are known as a Watson. Yes, we note that Holmes himself only narrates two of his many stories, uh, one such being the Musgrave Ritual. The Musgrave Ritual? What was that? Patience, Mr. Merchant, patience. Uh, well, Holmes was very untidy. Our chambers were always full of chemicals and criminal relics, eh? (laughs) But his papers were my greatest trial. He had a horror of destroying documents. At once a year or so, I would brown-beat him into docketing and cataloguing them. One winter night, as we sat together by fire, Holmes playing his casual calls on violin, I ventured to suggest that he might spend his time more profitably by making our sitting room a little more habitable. I say, Holmes, we should stop that catawalling. Oh, stop that racket. Why don't you do something worthwhile instead of lolling around like that? For instance? Well, uh, you could straighten this room up. Looks a bit of a pigsty every day. Oh, very well. Now where are you going? Look at this place. Papers on the table, papers on the floor, papers all over the chairs, papers, papers... uh... What are you doing, Holmes, pulling that large tin box in here? House cleaning. The key. Oh, yes. What have you got in there? Cases. Records of some of my earlier cases, done uh, prematurely, before I had such a competent biographer. I think if you knew what I had in this box, you'd ask me to pull out some instead of putting others in. It's no use, Holmes. You can't get around me like that. You just as well begin to put your stuff away. Here's the record of the Tarlington murders. The case of the Varnbury. Hmm. Yeah. The adventure of the Russian woman. The singular affair of the aluminium crutch. Aluminium crutch? Yes. A most amazing story. It was one day in April. The rain was coming down. I'm not interested. Well, I suppose I'd best get on with my work. Ah, now, this box has a very interesting little story. It's nothing but a wooden box of a sliding lid. Look inside. Look inside. The crumpled piece of paper with some doggerel written on it, an old-fashioned brass key, a peg of wood with a ball of string attached, and three rusty old discs of metal. Not very impressive. Well, what do you make of it? It's a strange collection, and there's a stranger story connected with it. Hmm. I suspected these relics had a history. They are history, my dear Watson. These are all I have left to remind me of the Musgrave Ritual. Fascinating case. Well, I'd better get on with my work. What was the Musgrave Ritual? You don't want to interrupt my labours of a silly story. Now get on with the story. Very well. It was one of my first cases, when I was making a precarious living out of my sleuthing. It had to do with Reginald Musgrave, a scion of one of the oldest families in the kingdom. Well, I hadn't seen Reginald Musgrave for several years... Until one morning, I received a note from him. Here it is. My dear Sherlock, I hear that you are turning to practical ends these powers with which you use to analyse us. 
Could you spare time to visit us at Hurlston? I, I can promise you a problem which will tax even your nimble wits. Hopefully yours, Reggie Musk. You can imagine in my eagerness, in my innermost heart, I believe that I could succeed where others had failed. Oh, the conceit. Don't interrupt, Watson. Well, late that night, I arrived at Hurlston to find myself enthusiastically greeted by my host. Well, Holmes, delighted to see you, my dear fellow. It's awfully good of you to come. You've gotten taller and thinner than ever. You're much the same, I should say, Musgrave. Alfred, carry Mr. Holmes's bags up to his room. Your butler is new at his job, isn't he? Yes, but how did you know? His uniform is a rather bad fit, and his legs are better suited to the stable yard than the drawing. As a matter of fact, he's just been promoted to his post. He used to be the head coachman. It's about Brunton, our old butler, that I wanted to see you. What about him? He's disappeared. Uh, Brunton's disappeared, eh? Seems to me I've heard you mention his name before. I dare say you have. He's been in service here for nearly 20 years, although he's barely 40 now. Mm, rather unusual. Yes. He was a young school teacher out of a place when he was first taken up by my father. He was a man of great ability, Handsome, spoke several languages, and played every musical instrument. Brunton had only one fault. Yes? He was a bit of a Don Juan. Uh, a few months ago, we were in hope that he was about to settle down, for he became engaged to Rachel Howes, our second maid. And what was this girl, uh, Rachel, like? Rachel is a very good girl. She had a touch of brain fever subsequent to the smash-up of her romance. I... Really am rather worried about the girl. Yes, but look here, Musgrave. You haven't brought me all the way from London to discuss the servant's girl's love affairs. That was our first drama at Hurlstone, and quite a tempest in a teapot it was. You know what country houses are like. But a second one came to drive it from our minds, and it was prefaced by the disgrace and dismissal of the butler Bronton. One night last week, Thursday to be exact, I found that I couldn't sleep... You know how it is. Well, at two o'clock I rose and lit a candle, intending to get a novel I had been reading in the library. I pulled on my dressing gown and started down the stairs. Imagine my surprise when, looking down the corridor, I saw a glimmer of light coming from the library door. My first thought was a burglar's. Luckily, our corridors are liberally decorated with trophies and old weapons. I seized a battle axe in either hand and tiptoed down the passage to the library door. Don't move if you value your life. Oh, sir. Why? Why, God bless me, it's Brunton. What are you doing down here in the middle of the night? Well, you see, sir, I... And my desk has been broken into, and my private papers strewn on the table. What What do you mean by going through my private papers? You scoundrel, after the trust we've had in you. Well, sir, I meant no the harm. impudence! The rank impudence! Brunton, you will leave my service tomorrow! No, Mr. Mosgrave, sir, I can't bear the disgrace. I've always been proud about my station yes. in life. and look what it has led you into. The disgrace will kill me, sir. At least give me notice. And leave in a month's time, as if it's my Very own well. free will. But a month is too long. Take yourself off in a week and give Only what reasons you wish oh, for. A fortnight, going. at least say a fortnight. A week? 
and you've been let off very lightly. Now put down that paper you have in your hand and get out! And after that little set too, you were too annoyed to sleep, eh, Musgrave? Well, as a matter of fact, I did spend the rest of the night thinking of things I should have said to the fellow. However, by morning I had calmed down somewhat. And Brunton? Well, two days afterwards, Brunton was most assiduous in his attention to his duties. On the third day, he was gone. Gone? Gone where? Just take it. That's what I would like to know. His bed had not been slept in, but all our windows and doors were found locked on the inside and no one had let him out. Did you question this girl, uh, Rachel? Yes. She's been very ill ever since his disappearance. Sometimes hysterical. Uh, I had to have a nurse to sit up with her at night. Uh, what was the condition of Brunton's room after the disappearance? Very orderly, as usual. His clothes, his watch, even his money were all in the room, but... The black suit he usually wore was missing. His slippers, too, were gone, but not his boots. Enlightening, most enlightening. And what was this paper he had in his hand when you surprised him in the it library? Was the Musgrave Ritual. The Musgrave Ritual? What's that? Rather an absurd business. It has only its antiquity to excuse it. It's a strange sort of catechism which each Musgrave must answer when he becomes of age. Could I see it? Certainly, certainly. It's in the library. Come this way. And now we bring you some music. Lost the friend. 
That was Peter Simeon singing Caledonia in a cover style of Celtic Women, originally sung by Dougie McLean. And now we return to Act 2 of Sherlock Holmes and the Musgrave Ritual. How private? I mean, is there anything there that would benefit Good anyone else? heavens, no. <laughs> no, sorry to disappoint you, Holmes. But I've learned a very tame and uninteresting one. I see one of the drawers was broken into. Very amateurish. I'm afraid Brunton had very little experience. Yes, that lock is completely damaged. I've moved everything to this side of the desk just the minute till I find my key. 
Ah, yes. And here is the Musgrave mm, ritual. Curious old writing. It dates back to uh, Charles I, I should say. You can tell by the spelling. Probably Charles II. My ancestor, Ralph Musgrave, was a prominent cavalier and right-hand man in Charles's wanderings. They went in for rigmarole of this sort in those days. It's just a series of questions and answers, uh, probably the bywords of a secret society. You know the answers by heart, I take it. Yes. It's something every Musgrave has to learn. Suppose I read off the questions and you give me the answers. Fire away. <laughs> you can't trip me up there. All right. Here goes. Whose was it? He who is gone. Who shall have it? He who will come. Where was the sun? Over the oak. Where was the shadow? Under the elm. How was it stepped? North by ten. And by ten, east by five, and by five, south by two, and by two, west by one, and by one, and so under. What shall we give for it? All that is ours. Why should we give it? For the sake of the trust. As you can see, Holmes, the paper has no practical importance. Hmm, on the contrary, it has a tremendous practical importance. Your butler seems to have uh, been a very clever fellow. He's had more insight than ten generations of his masters. I say, Holmes. The oak, I take it, is the one that stands here, to the east of the house. I noticed it as I drove up. That's right. You can see it from this yes, window. Yes, quite the patriarch. It must have been here when the ritual was drawn up. It was there at the Norman Conquest, in all probability. Hmm. Well, in any case, there's nothing more we can do until tomorrow morning. I suggest, my friend, that we retire for the night, for we will have a big day ahead of us. Good morning, Holmes. I hope you haven't been too bored prowling around the grounds by yourself. Sorry to have kept you waiting for breakfast. Fact is, I'm a bit upset. There's been another disappearance. Rachel eluded her nurse again last night, and so far, she hasn't been found. So I understand. Your new butler told me. I've traced her footprints to the edge of this lake. But the lake is over eight feet deep at this point. Oh, the poor demented girl. I took the liberty of ordering the drags and grappling hooks at once. Yes, I see the men working. Have you found... Hello, there seems to be some excitement now. The drags have caught something. Pull hard, boys. That's right. What a frightful business. Uh, hello. Why, why, it's not a body. No, it's a large canvas bag. Here, boys, give it to me. What's in it? Just a minute. Why, why, it's just a lot of old discolored metal and some dull colored pebbles or glass. Bah! Throw it back in. Stop. You'd better keep that stuff and bring it along, and don't let it out of your hands. Now, let's get back to the house. The sun is now over the I oak. I say, Holmes, you're not taking that rubbish seriously. The only thing that puzzles me is the absence of our ancient elm tree. Sorry to disappoint you. There are plenty of elderly beeches, won't they do? No, I'm afraid not. Wait a minute. There used to be an elm. Very ancient it was, too. 
Over there, you can still see the stump. It was cut down when I was about of 15. That's better. Midway between the house and the oak. Yes, that must have been the one. I suppose it's impossible to find out how tall it was. Not at all. It was 64 feet. Excellent. But how is... That tree was my tutor's favourite exercise in trigonometry. Now then, the shadow of the oak is fairly obvious. We can see that for ourselves. But the shadow of the elm is a bit more difficult. I say, Holmes, what are you doing with that fishing rod? A fishing rod of six feet throws a shadow of, uh, let me see, nine feet exactly. Quite simple. Therefore, a tree of 64 feet will throw a shadow of 96 feet and in the same direction. Where's my tape? Ah, yes. 96 feet. 96, yes. Here we are. I must say, Holmes, that's very neat. That's just the beginning, my dear fellow. Just the beginning. North, ten, and ten. Hmm. That's ten steps by each foot, I think that means. It takes you parallel to the well of the old wing of the house. Marked with a peg. Now five to the east. Yes, and two to the south. I say. It takes you to that old unused door. It's even unlocked. The old unused door has been quite used recently. The surrounding ivy is all torn. How long since this wing has been inhabited? Not for several generations. It's the oldest part of the house. Built in the 16th century, I should say. It's only used nowadays to store things in. Open the door. Two paces to the west. Obviously means two paces down this flagstone passage. What are you tapping the stones for? Well, this must be the place indicated by the ritual. Hmm, all firmly cemented together, not even a hollow sound. I told you it was all bold and Hold on. And so under. I nearly forgot that one. Is there a cellar underneath this place? Yes, it's as old as the house. Lead me to it. And that's where our search ends. Very well. But what are we searching for? And now, we bring you some breaking crime news of 1944. I just go over here and turn on the radio. On June the 19th, 1944, the trial began of Tony Agostini for the murder of his wife, Linda, in what was the beginning of the end of one of the most intriguing murder mysteries in Australian history. The story began 10 years before outside Albury, New South Wales, when a young farmer, Tom Griffith, was leading his prized bull home from town and spotted a woman's body halfway inside a stormwater drain. The body was partially clothed in what appeared to be crepe oriental style pyjamas. Thus began the case of the pyjama girl, who would captivate the nation for the next decade, as it appears her identity would never be revealed. The English-Australian homicide victim was said to be in her mid to late twenties, but no one came forward to claim the body. After the initial investigation failed to identify her, the body was taken to Sydney where it was put on public exhibition. 
She was preserved in a bath of formalin at the Sydney University Medical School until 1942, when her body was transferred to police headquarters, where it remained until 1944. The Pajama Girl's body was viewed first in Albury and later in Sydney by thousands of people, but there were no clues despite extensive investigations and even forensic research. It wasn't until March 1944 that the Commissioner of the New South Wales Police, William McKay, began to suspect the waiter at his favourite Italian restaurant, Antonio Ascostini, whose wife Linda was among several women police thought might have been the victim years before. Despite the fact that Linda had disappeared in 1934, police believed she had simply left the family home and perhaps even returned to England. When the law finally caught up with Ascostini, Italian quickly confessed, telling of a living nightmare of life with Linda, who was a party girl with a major drinking problem. Despite a bad press, Italians were looked down on at this time. Ascostini's defence team managed to convince the jury that the dapper little waiter was driven to do the dirty deed. He was found guilty of manslaughter rather than murder and imprisoned for six years with hard labour. Meanwhile, Linda had finally been laid to rest at Melbourne's Preston Cemetery on July the 13th, 1944. Headstone simply read, Florence Linda Ascostini, 1905 to 1934. Looking past breaking crime in 1944, Angostini served three years and nine months of his sentence before a deportation order was issued, and the 45-year-old former waiter was secretly taken on board a ship and bound for his homeland, Italy. We now return you to the thrilling conclusion of Sherlock Holmes and the Musgrave Ritual. Steps here. It's very dark. This is the cellar. We store wood down here sometimes. Hello. It's all been moved to the side. What's this? It's Brunton's mufflock. What's the villain been doing down here? Ah, just as I thought. Look here. This piece of wood. It's been used to prop up something heavy. See how both ends are flattened. Look. The muffler's attached to this iron ring set in the flagstone. Quite a sizable flagstone, eh? He must have had someone to help him. He couldn't have raised that by himself. You mean Brunton? He was after the buried treasure. He probably talked Rachel into assisting him. That's how she happened to be in possession of that bag when she threw it into the lake. I don't understand what you're talking about. Hmm. I can't budge it. Lend me a hand, will you, Musgrave? Right-ho. Ugh. Ugh. There it comes. Quick. Pop it up with that piece of wood. That's it. By Jove, it's... It's a small room down there. And there on the side. What's that? That, my dear Musgrave, is what Brunton was after. Come on, let's go down. 
A brass-bound wooden box, all covered with dust and worm-eaten. The lid has been thrown back. Look here, Holmes. I thought you expected to find a considerable treasure. All this trunk contains is a few discolored discs of metal. Old coins, apparently. I say, do you think that rascal Brunton has been here and robbed me? Well, that was his intention, undoubtedly. But I don't think he succeeded. Why not? The box is empty. Because I think I see his feet sticking out from behind this box. Here, help me move the box. It's Brunton, all right. He's... he's dead. Quite. Suffocated, I fancy. This cubbyhole isn't very large. Yes, but how? How did it happen? He was murdered on the second night, after you discovered him in the library. I can reconstruct the scene fairly easily from the data we have on hand. Rachel's condition, the bag found in a lake, the open door, the muffler, and the piece of wood used as a prop. It is the last which is particularly significant. He had talked Rachel into assisting him. They waited until everyone had gone to bed, then stole down here. It was a stormy night, I believe. The lantern. That's better. For the love of heaven, don't look like that, Rachel. Nothing's going to happen to you. I'm afraid. Do you think that we ought... What's the matter with you? If I'd have known you'd have no more spunk in you than this, I'd, I'd have asked someone else. I thought you said you loved me. I do. You know I'd do anything for you. Well then, come along. Down this stairway. Easy. But... Stealing? To take something a man doesn't even know he has, he'll never miss it. But it's his. It's not ours. What of it? He hasn't the sense to find it, has he? I'm the only one who has enough brains for that. Think I want to spend the rest of my life waiting on them that aren't as good as I am? We'll have money. We'll be rich. Why do you think I didn't marry you before? Think I'm going to starve myself to keep a wife? Then you will marry me. If we find it. Here's the ring. Wait, I'll pull my muffler through it. But you will marry me. You must. I haven't told you before because I didn't want to worry you. But my folks are starting to suspect and I can't... Stop your babbling and grab this muffler. Now pull. Harder. It's so heavy. A lot of use you are to a man. Pull harder, I tell you. It's coming up. Quick. Shove that piece of wood under here. There. Why? There's a trunk down there. Of course. And I'm going to find what's in it. Stop trembling, you fool. You're shaking the lantern. You will marry me, won't you? Ah, it's dusty down here. Ah, oh, there's even a key in the lock. Up goes the lid. Ah, well, well, well. That's something like it. You will marry me. Here, put this stuff in the canvas bag I brought along. Careful, you ninny. Don't drop it. Now give me a hand and help me out of here. 
You haven't answered me. Haven't answered what? You are going to marry me. What kind of fool do you take me for? How do you know I'm the only lover you had? A wretch like you. Oh, I hate you. I hate you. I hate the sight of you. I don't ever want to see you again. Here, what are you doing? Don't move that wood. Look out, you fool. You'll pull it out. You'll... You won't marry me. What did Brunton find that he considered so valuable? The contents of that bag. This old rubbish? Why, the metal is almost blackened. These dull-looking stones... Try rubbing one of them. That reddish one, for instance. Righto. I say, I say, it develops quite a sparkle. Quite. I imagine that stuff was left in your ancestor's possession by the royal party on the death of Charles I. I congratulate you on your discovery. It is of great interesting value, but, an, but of even greater importance as a historical curiosity. Why, what is it then? It is nothing less than the ancient crowns of the kings of England. So concludes the Radio Play Hour, Sherlock Holmes and the Musgrave Ritual. Thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. We leave you now with some political news of 1944 and the music of Harry James and his orchestra played on my 110-year-old gramophone player. In political news for 1944, we now have our first and only representative of the Communist Party of Australia, elected to an Australian Parliament, plus a brand new party in the federal arena. Australian politician, activist, unionist and lawyer Frederick Patterson, also known as Red Fred, was elected to the seat of Bowen at the 1944 Queensland state election. While Patterson had polled slightly behind his rival in Bowen itself, he was far in front in the mining and sugar farming areas, which resulted in a significant win. He was also destined to regain the seat at the next election. Pet Patterson, who was born in 1897 and raised on a pig farm, made a name for himself in the Great Depression, fighting racist employment policies in the sugar industry. At the time, unions and employer associations had a policy of refusing employment to Italian workers because of high unemployment within the industry. During his time in the Queensland Parliament, Patterson advocated for a socialist post-war reconstruction aimed at full employment. These policies included increasing nursing salaries, the implementation of the 40-hour week into law, equal pay for women, capping rents related to the average income, and abolishing child labour on farms. The communist member also wanted free publicly owned and managed housing, childcare, nurseries, pharmaceuticals and hospitals, and the introduction of free education from kindergarten to the highest level at university. He argued that these would come about through widespread nationalisation. In the meantime, on October the 16th, 1944, the Liberal Party of Australia was formed, a successor to the United Australian Party, the UAP. The party was created to be the largest and dominant partner in coalition with the National Party of Australia. Robert Menzies, who was Prime Minister from 1939 to 1941, was the driving force behind the new party. 
We laid the foundations for this vision with a series of the Forgotten People radio talks in the early 1940s. Inspired by U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt's fireside chats of the 1930s, he spoke of the Australian middle class as the backbone of Australia, which had been taken for granted by succeeding political parties. He outlined his goal for the new party at a conference of conservative interests and anti-labour groups in Canberra on October 13, 1944. He described the new Liberals as a party for national power and progress, and described Labour as the party for the dull and deadening process of socialism. Looking past the breaking political news of 1944, Red Fred Patterson was literally kicked out of politics in 1948, when a policeman beat him so badly he was hospitalised for a month. The following year he lost his seat in the state election. Patterson continued his activism and died at the age of 80 in 1977. The policeman, who was named by Labour politician Bill Hayden, was never held to account. In contrast, the Liberal Party was the most successful post-war government, winning the 1949 federal election and retaining power for 23 years. Sir Robert Menzies was destined to be Australia's longest-serving PM, with a total of 18 years. Liberal John Howard was Australia's second-longest-serving PM from 1996 to 2007. In 2007, Howard lost both government and his seat, as a new era of revolving door politics had arrived on the Australian political landscape. Tune in next time for Candy Matson and the Cable Car Murder. We now bring you the music of Harry James. <laughs>